Father God, we come to worship and honor you today on this Earth Day. What a blessing to look out the window and see the glory of the sun, which we've missed so much this year. We are awed and humbled to be in your world. Might we also be awed and humbled as we see the calling of the Spirit through the Beatitudes, and yet somehow, though we can't live up to that glorious calling either, help us to be in this earth that you've created. Help us to be a part of it and to give all praise and glory and honor to you for your kingdom which has no end. Amen. All right, I'm sorry for the a little bit of a delay. I need some other readers. Who have I passed out uh, these passages to? Uh, here, take this, please. That's Genesis 36.1. Genesis 25. Well, well, get the judge involved. He's not doing anything. Did you read that? <laughs> Could you read this for me? When the time comes. 728. Matthew 728. That, please. Good morning. We are today uh, have as our topic the some literary considerations regarding the book of Matthew. As you know, this course is about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is an essential part of the book of Matthew, but we can't really understand it uh, unless we put it in its holistic literary context in the brilliant book of Matthew and the way that he's uh, laid it out. We're going to show you that today, uh, the things that Matthew had in his mind about his thesis, what he wanted. Uh, and by the way, what's a thesis? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And a dysentery is what you write to get a PhD. <laughs> I mean dissertation, sorry. The thesis is what comes before the antithesis. The thesis is what comes before the antithesis. Never ask an intellectual question like that. Um, the Greek word tithemi means to throw or put down, to fling something down. A thesis is something you fling down, throw down, and say, I I'm going to make this case. Uh, in legal terms, what, it, what would it be called? A thesis. A brief, a, but a brief carries the case. Does the brief at the top say what we are, does it have an initial thing that says this is what this brief is going to prove? Yes. Is there a legal term for that? <laughs> it's okay. Yes. He's got the authority, but what's your opinion? Yeah. A proposition. Thank you. That's what it, a proposition. Same thing. So a tithemi, a thesis, a proposition is that you, you, you tell the audience, your, your hearers, I'm here today to put this before you and I want you to listen to it and examine it, okay? Because I'm going to give you evidence to buttress my thesis. So I want you to learn Matthew's thesis today and you're going to find that in Matthew 1.1. Kindly turn there right now, please. Then we're going to show you how he structured, he actually used a literary structure 
to put his gospel together. I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit didn't guide him. I'm just saying that there's an evidence structure that you're going to learn. And then at the end, we would like to show you a few of the literary devices that he may have used via question and answer, and we'll get to that. Also questions that you may have. So, let's start. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, let's have some readings, because uh, it's interesting how they translate it. Uh, could somebody read it from this past table, please? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. A record of the genealogy. That's what I want you to keep in mind. Anybody have a different one? Yes. Wow, the family tree. Now that's what's known as a. Um, that's beyond dynamic equivalency. That's. Uh, that's a paraphrase. That's a paraphrase, and that's okay because it, it, family tree. Um, uh, written record chronology. Uh, chronology of what? Aaron. Oh, the account of. Come on in, distinguished people. Come right up here. Come right up here. Anyways, uh, anybody else have something different? A book? The book of other generations. Ah. Okay, that's King James. Okay, now, I hate to be the pedantic professorial prig, but I got to tell you something. No, you don't. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, does anyone know Greek here? See, when a Jew would read this out of this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That's, anybody know what it's called? Septuagint. <laughs> yeah, but this is the Older Testament, not the New Testament. This is the first translation of the Bible done in the history of the world. Done around, not this copy, but <laughs> the Septuagint itself, done around 200 BC. Jewish scholars took the Jewish Bible and translated for the first time in history, the Hebrew text is turned into Greek. And now it's called the Septuagint. Why did they do that? Because the Jewish community of Egypt, mostly in Alexandria, no longer spoke or read Hebrew. They were Greek-speaking. So because of cultural reasons, they made a translation. Now, guess what Bible the apostles and virtually all of the other people that Jesus hung around with and all the people he sent out. What Bible did they read and use when they taught people? This Bible. Now, they read Hebrew, but they used this one, and why would they do that? Why didn't they say to the Gentiles of the world, hey, sorry, if you don't speak Hebrew, you can't hear God. Why did they, why did they use this translation? Yes, they wanted to communicate because people spoke Greek, so they used their... How providential for the Jewish people to have translated the Septuagint into Greek just a couple hundred years before the people of the world most needed it. So, when a Jew is reading Matthew, and he gets to the first two words in the first century, and it says, Biblos 
Genesios. Book of... Genesios. Yeah. Biblos Genesios. Book of... The generations. Generations. Genealogy. A Jew reads that in the first century. And if they know the Bible well, the first thing they think of is, what does Genesis 2-4 say? Who's got it? Genesis 2-4. Somebody, I gave this text to somebody to read. <laughs> That's okay. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is the account. What's it say in Greek? What it says in Greek is Alain Hobiblos Genesios. <laughs> The book, this is the book of the generations. Is that construction, Biblios Genesios, the same as Biblos Genesios here? It is identical, professor. What does a professor say when, when you see direct language in one document show up in another? No, that's I found it. Um, it's a quotation. It's a quotation. What's Matthew? Oh, I know. 5.1. Look at Genesis 5.1. Who's got that? Who's reading? List of the descendants of Adam. Um, anything else? 5.1, Genesis. I'm not faulting the translations because they're doing the best they can. It's just that, uh, you know, for a Jew reading in the first century, you didn't have to go through all those hula hoops because we get to 5.1. This is the... Biblos Genesios. Is it the same construction? Yes. See, God says everything should be established in the matter of two witnesses. So I'm one and he's the second. So okay. we, just, we, <laughs> we just showed you what? Matthew is quoting... a phrase from the book of Genesis for a reason. Now let's try to find out what that reason is. Can uh, I give a minority uh, report? You can. You, okay. Please. The Jews of Egypt and of Alexandria would have been reading the Bible in Greek. The Jews of Palestine and Syria would have been hearing it read in Hebrew and there would then follow a translation into, anybody have a guess? Aramaic, exactly. Because at the same time that they were translating the Bible into Greek, they were also translating it all the time as Aramaic because the people no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Who else spoke Aramaic? Jesus, Jesus and all his disciples spoke Aramaic. What's interesting about the Holy Land at this time is it's one of the places, the few places on earth, the Holy Land and Syria, where you would have basically had two universal languages that were spoken. They were Aramaic and 
Greek. Aramaic and Greek. Okay? And we cannot rule out that Jesus knew Greek. Because if you're going to wheel and deal in the marketplace, as one scholar put it, you had to know some Greek. And, uh, but in any event, the important point is you get the Hebrew that they would have heard read in the synagogue for Genesis 5.1, Ze Sefer Toldot Adam. These are the generations of Adam, Beyom Bara Elohim, in the day that God created, okay? Generations, the book of the generations, okay? Now, quick check. The, uh, oops, wrong one. There we go. The Aramaic. It has Ketava Dilid Ute, Di Yeshua Meshicha Bere de David Bere de Abraham. I'm going to get into this more in a moment. But if you were going to do that in Hebrew, what would it be? Sefer Toldot. Exactly the same. Sefer Toldot. Okay? And he'll explain that later. Okay, now. What we just showed you is that there is a, uh, a phrase that's being used from Genesis in the book of Matthew, cross-corroborated with the Hebrew and the Aramaic, that is all centered around this word, toldot, which is used, now you're going to see inductively, find the next passage in Genesis. We've already looked at two one, um, the first one. Uh, two, two, four, five, one. We looked at. Who's got six, nine now? Thank you. Nice and loud. Uh, these are the descendants of Noah. Now, see, you don't. It doesn't come across in the English, but guess what the Hebrew word is? Toldot. Over and over and over again. This is the third time it's been used. This is the toldot of the heavens and the earth. This is the toldot of, what's the second one? Of Adam. This is the toldot of Noah. Who's got the next one? Ten one. All right, so again, they translated descendants, but guess what the Hebrew word is? Toldot. This is the toldot of Shem, Ham, Japheth. Uh, yes, uh, account of the people that proceeded from, the genealogy, it's all those words bound up together, but what I want you to see and understand and know for certain, that the author of Genesis is using this word over and over and over again, right? You see that? At this point, I just want to jump in. The word toldot, like every other Hebrew or Aramaic word, is based on a verb, the verb is valad, okay, as in Avraham holid et Yitzhak, which we usually would see translated, Abraham begat Isaac. 
So In other words, toldot could also be translated as, these are the begettings. It all works. Now, 11.10. Who's got that? Ah, thank you. Go. Yes, please. He became, they translated it, he became the father of, he begat, this is the toldot of this person. This is the generation of this person. 1127. Who's got that? 1127, Genesis. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haram. These and are the. And Haram is, was the father of Lot. This is the Toldot of Terah. What? Who's Terah, by the way? Abraham's father. So this is this is where Abraham came from. Twenty-five, twelve. These are the descendants, the toldot, the begettings of, again, the phrases used. 2519. Guess what the Hebrew word is? Guess what the Hebrew word is? Toldot? 361? Hey! Finally, we got it right. So, let me ask you a question. Um, is this imposed? Is this, did we impose this structure? If I say to you, wow, I discovered, not I, we discovered these, this pattern, this pattern that the author of Genesis, did we discover it or are we imposing it? Did we, inherit, did we discover this pattern inherently in the text or did we bring our paradigm to the text and impose it upon the text? What did we do? We discovered it inherently in the document. Now, in technical terms, that's known as exegesis. Do you guys use that in legal terms? Exegesis? Yeah, what does it mean to exegete a legal concept? To, to work it out, to bring it out, to tease it out, to, to say what it means. Uh, what, what's, a const, what's, what's a legal constructionist? Or what are these a revisionists? What do these people do? Yeah, what are the, what's the, all these, the argument of I'm a strict constructionist versus I'm, what's the other wing of You use the current contemporary stuff that's going on from a legal perspective to understand culture, and then you take that and you try to weave it in and understand the law. It's a big discussion in law. Do we, is the law a stable set thing that's forever this way and we, we, do we discover it and impose it or do we adjust it? Now, in Bible study, what you never want to do is what? 
impose. What you want to do above all things is say, what was the intention of the author? What did the author want to say? And uh, once you find a pattern, now the author has told you, this is what I'm trying to tell you. So what was the author of Genesis trying to do? Who thinks they can see this? Why use this characteristic, patternistic phrase over and over again? These are the told notes of over and over, ten times or nine times, right through the book, structured the whole book based on this. That would mean that all the chapter divisions and all that stuff that we put in the book of Genesis. It, oh, no. Well, maybe if you want to look at it from an overarching cosmic point of view, but just when the author was writing Genesis. Ah, he's answering a question. What's he answering? What question is he answering? Where did, where did all this stuff come from? Where did the cosmos come from? Where did humans come from? And then at the end of the book, he switches focus and wants to answer the question, where did... Um, not Jesus. Je what's Abraham. Jews. Second half of the book is the Jewish genealogy, the Jewish family tree. So the author's telling a story using a literary device. And if, we, if I could take the book of Genesis, strip all of the cheater headlines off of it and all of the verses, like I did for you in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Did anybody look at that, by the way? Like if I gave you the book of Genesis, printed out this way, and you were really a diligent student, and you started reading, and you read over and over and over again, eventually what would happen? Well, what do you think would happen? You'd fall asleep. No. You would finally somehow notice the patterns. And if you had like a really good scholar teacher sitting there, they might say, hey, did you notice that pattern there? You know, they might help you along, but whatever. The thing is, we could then reorganize the entire book of Genesis and put that heading, strip everything else and put that, and then when you read it, guess what would happen? It would hit you in the face. Oh, wow, this is what this author is trying to tell me. Now, I'm not deprecating any work that's been done on the Bible. I'm just here to tell you that that's the way it was, okay? I, I, I wasn't there. Uh, and if I had been, I would have made, as I do today, make the same mistakes in time, space, history as I would have then. Why didn't they do that? Because they, they wanted to make the Bible workable so that Pastor Dave could say, to, would you kindly turn into Matthew 25, 13? Instead of, as they did in the old days, do you know where Jesus is talking about the end of days in the book of Matthew? And everybody's like, uh, no, where's that? So if you say 2513, it's a shortcut you can get right there, right? So it's a, it's a nice cheater aid. It's a help. It's a little, nice little crutch. Except that when we come in with our cheater Bible headlines, verse divisions, bolds, footnotes, and when one-third of the Bible page is, is filled up with commentary and notes and stuff, and only the text is there, and then they're telling you what this paragraph is about, it's possible that something could happen. John, 
Okay. What would it be possible to happen? I mean, that you'd miss the original intent of the author. Go ahead. Okay. Actually, I wasn't there. <laughs> but some of my ancestors were. <laughs> and before you got your chapters and verses and headings, has anyone here ever been to Temple Israel on a visit, on a Shabbat? Did Rabbi Spitzer pull out the Torah scroll and show you what it looked like? Okay, some of you have probably seen that. If you've seen a Torah scroll, what you will notice is that you have blocks of text, and every now and then there will be a space, either in the middle of a line or at the end of a line. In the middle of the line, it is called a setumah, which means closed off, or pesukah, which means open. This was the original division of the text, but there was one that was probably more significant for the Jews at that time. Because one of the things that, what did you gather in the synagogue to do? What was the basic purpose of gathering in the synagogue, particularly on the Sabbath? What? Well, not really worship. Read the Torah. Have the Torah read out loud. And you had developed a lectionary, a schedule of readings for the entire Torah to be read through in a single year. And each of the portions was called a parashah, which is just the Hebrew word for portion. Okay. Each parashah had a name. Okay. Now, here's an interesting note. Because if you will turn, it's one of the passages we looked at. If you will turn to Genesis uh, da, 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 da. Genesis 25:19. Okay. Genesis 25:19. All right. Someone want to read that? Okay. Again, what is it going to be in the Hebrew? The Elu Toldot Yitzhak ben Avraham, Avraham Holid et Yitzhak. Okay. Now, this is called. The first significant word in a parasha gives it its name. So this is the beginning of a parasha, which is called what? Toldot. The whole parasha is called Toldot. Now I want to take a look at this. The Elu Toldot Yitzchak. These are the generations of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Why is that there? What's the author trying to tell you? Anybody? Come on. 
What is the author trying to tell you? It seems like he's, he's, you know, finding out how many different ways can I hit this nail on the head? Who you are. Well, I mean, why does he have to repeat? These are the generations of Isaac. Abraham begot Isaac. Okay? I mean, we've had that story before this. Why? What was there about Isaac? No. What was there unusual about Isaac's birth? What? He was born what? No. What was unusual about Isaac's birth? Sarah and who? What was their condition when Isaac was born? They were old. What does Isaac's name Yitzchak mean? Laughter. He laughed. Why? Because when God told Abraham that he and Sarah were going to have a kid together, what did Abraham do? He laughed. Why? He was 100 years old. Sarah was hitting 90. Yeah, she really laughed. Okay. Because what had ceased with her? She was way past menopause, folks. All right, so that now, is... Wait, wait, wait. Now. That's a... Wait, wait, wait. Before I'm we, about to make my point. <laughs> make your point. Okay. Now you look at Matthew 1.1. And here it is important. If it was necessary in Parashat Toldot to emphasize that Abraham really was the father of Isaac, and Isaac really was the son of Abraham, then what do you do with Sefer Toldot Yeshua Meshichah ben David ben Avraham, to give the Hebrew equivalent? What are you trying to say in that passage? Who were Jesus' ancestors? David and Abraham. Any Jew would have been hit over the head with this. This is really significant. This isn't just preliminary throat clearing. Okay, we are saying Jesus really is the descendant of the Toldot of David and of the Toldot of Abraham. And thus linking Jesus to that story in Genesis. Right? You see that? He blatantly linked the the genealogy of Jesus as a continuation of the Genesis genealogy. Why would that be important to a Jewish audience? Belief that he was really the Messiah, but also, this really fits with what you already know and with what you already believe. This is just a direct continuation. So the, the Jewish person hears the first two words, Biblos Genesios, the book of the generation, boom, they go right over to the Toldotes of Genesis. Then they read the second part. This is the uh, Biblos 
genealogy of Jesus, historical figure, Asus, Yeshua, and then he uses a word there that's mind-blowing. What, is, what word does he use? After he says Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Son. Uh, no, he uses the term Christos. Meshicha in, uh, in Aramaic. That's not Jesus' last name. That's a title. He's saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, and I'm going to put in parentheses, you know, the one from Nazareth? He's the Messiah. And, good news, he picks out of that whole welter of genealogy that he could have selected. He gives you a little clue. You know, like with Jewish people that really know the Bible, when the rabbis are teaching the kids and the students, they just allude to the text. You allude to it. You don't have to cite the whole Bible passage because if you have to cite the whole Bible passage and read it to the student, the teacher in the Jewish context says what? You shouldn't be here because you should know the text already. You have to know the text first, then you come and I will tell you. So a Jewish person's reading is a boom! They already know the text. Oh, he's tying this over here. And then out of that whole welter of genealogy that he could have chosen, boom, he chooses David and Abraham. Why? Getting warm. Starts with a C. Presbyterians love it. Ah! Covenant! The Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12.3 In your seed I will bless everybody in the whole world. Wow! Who's Jesus? The full fulfillment of the covenant. He's Abraham's seed. That means what? He's an inheritor of that promise. He can become the agent for blessing the world. Davidic covenant, what was the essence of it? The core of it? Yes! That's correct. So who do you think he's writing to? Well, yes, of course, eventually, but you hand that, you hand that, no, you hand that mess to a Roman, and they're going to like, yeah, well, our people came from a wolf five, you know, 500 years ago, yeah. Uh, it's for the Jewish people. For, of course it's for you. Because at the end of the, because right there he's telling you Abraham's the promise of Abraham wasn't just for Jewish people. If via your seed I will do what? I'll bless everybody in the whole world. So it's for all of us. But Matthew's writing to Jewish people. Davidic covenant. You shall never lack a man from your body, from your descent, to sit upon the throne of Israel. A perpetual kingdom was granted throne of David's descendants. What's Matthew saying? Aha! He's 
qualified to be the king of the Jews, and he's qualified to become the agent for the blessing of all of the Gentiles of all of the world. Jesus is God's oh, anointed. Thank you. You just showed us. Because what does a person do in a thesis? Yeah, but what does a thesis do? I flung down before you a thesis. I'm telling you, Matthew says that Jesus' genealogy is linked to the book of Genesis. It's a continuation of it. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the Christos. He's the anointed one. That's my thesis. Now, you're right. What does a judge then do? After you make that, what did you call it, malarkey or whatever it is? You drill down into it and look at it. Does this comport with law? Did they make a good case? Does it make sense? Well, now, great. Thank you. So now who's got the Matthew passages? Who's got the first one? Matthew, um, if you want to, uh, you could turn the page over and look at this one with the blue diamond on it. Who's got 728? Thank you. Read that for us, please. astonished at his doctrine. So, this is a little tagline. So when Jesus got done, when he finished, right? That's what he says? Okay, next one, 11.1. One. He went on from there to, to teach and preach in their cities. Any similarity? Any similarity between those two texts? Okay, then let's go to the next one and see if it comes through. 1353. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. Who saw it? Ah, there it is. He just finishes. Matthew's putting a little tagline there. So when he finished, okay. What's the next one, 19.1? When Jesus had finished saying these things, he went into the region of Judea to the other side of Jordan. Similarity? 26.1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the, the, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Did we impose or discover? He's using a literary technique. What's that technique called? You learned about it in English class. Patternistic repetition. Right? You repeat. You repeat. And some people get offended at it because they say, you already told me that. You already said that. But when an author does it blatantly, what, the, what they're trying to tell you is what? I'm telling you that this is a structural device that I'm using to guide your reading. Follow along if you really want to get... Okay, so if he finishes at 7... What is it, 28? If he finished there, where did he begin? And this is where people that have really cool cheater Bibles have the total advantage. Because if you have the words of Jesus in red, 
you can easily answer this question. If he finished at 728, where did he begin? Quick, quick, quick. Hey, 5-1, right? Because from 5-1 until that whole, what is that color? It's pure red. That's a nice helpful device, cheater Bible device, that uses the words of Jesus. Okay, so what we have here is apparently what? Actually, we have the core of our course. This is what called what? The Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so it's a block of teaching. Uh, if he finished at 11.1, where did he begin? Cheater Bible help? At five what? No, no, we already got that one. Five three through seven twenty eight is one. If he finished at eleven one, where did he begin? Aha! And we found that out by how? By cheating, yes. <laughs> now see if we would have if we had the whole Bible laid out in block text with no nothing, and you were a serious student. I mean, I'm going to say like a stone-cold Jewish kid that like really drills down. Eventually, the kid would come across and say, oh, wow, there's a pattern here. They would find it. Hey, if he finishes at 1353, where did he begin? You wouldn't need the red letters, in other words. You'd just discover it. But, wow, thankful for red letters on a Sunday morning. So, what's the next one? Where, if he be, finishes at 1353, where did he begin? Thirteen three, And we know that because it's pretty doggone red all the way through that whole chapter. <laughs> yes, right. So here we have uh, one, two, block of teaching, block of teaching, block of teaching, block of teaching, three. Hey, uh, what is that, 19-1? He finishes at 19.1. He finished at 19.1. Where did he begin? And how do we know that? That's where the red starts gushing. Wow. And finally, 26.1. And when Jesus finished, did he finish there? Where did he begin? Well, Wow. It's a big sermon here. Now, we don't need to argue about it today. People have different views, but somewhere from 23 through all the way through 25. And the interesting thing about this is each one of these sermons has a theme to them. It's just a common theme. Does anyone want to suggest what that theme may be? The kingdom of heaven. Kingdom. Every one of these, do we want to call them sermons? Teachings? Rabbinic discourses? They have a theme. They all have to do with the kingdom, which we will look at as we go along. Now, hey, did we impose, how did Matthew structure his gospel? 
I mean, it goes from the beginning to the end. How do you structure it? Oh, no. I mean, there's a chronological part to it, but that's not the literary device that he's using. He's using five sermons of Jesus. Five sermons that Jesus gave. Five distinct sermons over the course of his career. And he's stitching them together. And out of those five, he's putting other stuff in there, which scholars call pericopes, stories and incidentals. But the five, that's the structure. You can see that because did we discover it or impose it? You discovered it. And we found out that Matthew's kind of like using the same little literary technique that another author used. And who would that have been? The author of Genesis. You know, it's like a Jewish tradition. Uh, wow. So now, here's the question which Zev is going to unpack for you. Uh, how many sermons did Jesus give? hundred and fifty six why would you select five now watch this we have seven to nine minutes you get this chart out find that triangle get ready to look at the verses and now you'll see what Matthew is doing as Zev explains it okay wait a minute we have to drill down on five. What other body of sacred literature comes in five? The Torah. So if Matthew is structuring his gospel in five sermons, what is he saying about Jesus? Is he just following the Torah? What? He's a good Jewish boy. What or who is Jesus? What? No, and by five books. What is he? I'm looking for a who. He's Moses. He's the new Moses. He's the new Moses. Now, you're going to turn. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, Why? He's going to show you right now. You're going to turn to Deuteronomy. Who? If it... If it if it's not true, it's a death penalty under the Torah because it's blasphemy. Yeah. yeah. If it's not true. All right. You're going to turn to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, well, 15 through 22. And you have that sighted underneath the blue diamond. Okay. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. Does someone want to undertake to read that? 
for you a prophet. Like me, from among your own people, you shall heed such a prophet. This is what you, are, you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, If I hear the voice of the Lord my God any more, or ever again see this great fire, I will die. Then the Lord replied to me, They are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. 22 or 20. That's fine. Okay. That gives us at least. So what might the people of Israel at the time of Jesus have been waiting for? Not just any prophet, but the prophet like Moses. Now turn to John. Gospel of John. Well, um, hold on. We're in John 1, and we're looking at verses 19 through 21. When Jews from Jerusalem sent a group of priests and officials to ask John who he was, he was completely honest. He didn't evade the question. He told the plain truth. I am not the Messiah. They pressed him. Who then? Elijah? I am not. The prophet? No. Okay, which prophet are they talking about? So, what three figures were they asking John the Baptist whether he was or not? Three figures. Messiah, Elijah, and prophet like Moses. Those were the three basic messianic expectations of the time of Jesus. The Jewish people were waiting for them. Now, we are going to go back into Matthew, and we're going to take in that blue triangle. Okay. And we're looking at Matthew 17, 1 through 8. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. So somebody who, yes. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Okay. Now, who do you have up on this mountain? Oh, before we do that, you started off with the words, and after six days. Six days after what? No. When you see, and after six days, after what? How about turning back to chapter, the last verse of chapter 16? Okay. Now read 16.28. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When you go home, I want you to get out your bottle of whiteout. Okay? And I want you to apply it to that number 17 and the chapter heading. Because that is the worst chapter and verse division they ever came up with. What is happening in 18.1? 17. Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus, and what are they seeing? They're seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is what the transfiguration is. It is the coming of the Son of Man in the kingdom. Yeah? Well, don't forget that in 16... Well, what else happened before that passage we read in chapter 16? What went immediately before that? Involved one of the three people we see with Jesus on the mountaintop. Those of you who went to Israel, we went up to Philippi Caesarea... What did we remember from up there? What, what happened up there? That was the first time that Peter said, you, when Jesus said, who are you? Who do you think I am? Peter said, we think, he said, you're the Christ. So he has just confessed Jesus is the Christ, then been told that the Christ is going to die. Then Jesus says, no, six days, well, in six days you'll see me come in my glory. And then boom, okay. we're on the mountain. Now, who do we have besides Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop? Jesus, Elijah, and, and Moses. <coughs> okay. So who do we have bearing witness to Jesus? What? Okay, what do Moses and Elijah <laughs> represent to a good Jewish person? The Torah and the prophets. 
They are bearing witness to Jesus. After the cloud parts and the disciples get up off their faces, who do they see? Jesus. Only Jesus. Okay, so what does that tell you about the role of the Torah and the prophets? What? Not, it's not quite how a Jewish person would foretold or not really foretold. That's not a good word. I don't like that. Prepared the way or? <laughs> Very good. How does God establish a matter according to Deuteronomy 18.15? No. What do you need? Our law principles are built on it. Everything has to be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. So Edith just said, there is one witness there, God, but... You also have the witness of the Torah and the witness of the prophets. That's how a Jew would think. So God just did what? Used God's own legal principle for verifying a matter and giving evidence to do what? To buttress his thesis. Okay, now I want to drill down on one further ver passage in Matthew 17. What command does God leave those three disciples with at the end of the scene? Listen to him. Well, who else are we commanded to listen to? The prophet like Moses. Oh. In other words... If you are a good Jew, what is Matthew presenting here? Jesus is, yes, the Messiah, yes, the son of David, yes, the son of Abraham, the heir to all these covenants, but he is also what? He is the prophet like Moses. He's the new Moses, so who do we need to listen to? Jesus. Okay. Okay, brilliant. We've got to stop now. I wish we could go on longer. Um, thank you so much, Sev, for all of that. And uh, next week, you have a special treat. Um, Zev's going to be teaching from the Aramaic in the Sermon on the Mount and showing you the cultural background uh, that would have been contemporaneous with Jesus and how other Jewish people would have looked at it. So that'll be another great way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. God bless you, and let's say a prayer together before you go. What can we say, Jesus, but we need to listen to you? That's what we learned today. You are the one that God has sent to us. And in these weeks to come, we ask for your grace that we would listen in the biblical sense, which you always mean to, to imply to obey as well. Give us the grace to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Bye-bye. Have a nice day.